episode of Death-Defying Discussions with your host, Michael Williams. My colleague Diane DeVivo is away this week working on another project, but that doesn't stop us from bringing you another special guest to talk about death, dying, and end-of-life services. In this episode, my guest is Sandra Andrzejczyk. Sandra Andrzejczyk is a healthcare consultant who has been in the health industry for more than 30 years. She has practiced as a registered nurse, a clinical educator, and nursing practitioner in the newborn intensive care unit. She completed a Master of Sciences in Nursing in 2000 from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and a Master's of Health Sciences in Bioethics in 2006 from the University of Toronto. And in 2013, she became a healthcare ethicist practicing as the clinical and organizational ethicist at Hamilton Health Sciences until recently, back in 2021. Sandra has led several end-of-life initiatives, including development of hospital infrastructure to support patients and their families experiencing death and dying. Sandra's primary focus and research efforts are directed towards end-of-life and goals of care planning and building hospital infrastructure to support palliative and end-of-life care. She's a master trainer in the Serious Illness Care Program and holds many certifications. In 2021, Sandra transitioned to the role of an advanced healthcare consultant with a focus on supporting individuals and healthcare professionals with end-of-life care planning and integration of early palliative care. Well, I had to begin by asking Sandra, how and why did she get into nursing in the first place? Well, I, I have to be honest and say that um, I thought that when you did good deeds for others, good deeds would come back to you. So that was my selfish mind uh, when I was five years old, because that's how long um, I wanted to be a nurse. Um, I used to watch a neighbor of mine walk up the street to the bus in her white uniform and her white cap, and she would go down to St. Joe's in Hamilton, and she was a nurse, and I thought, oh my God, I want to be like her. Um, and I really did, um, you know, I, I guess as I, as I matured, um, what I came to realize is that when you help others, it feeds your soul, and you actually... Um, it's, it's the most rewarding thing that you can do. And yet um, it can be part of your everyday life. And so um, this idea of, you know, something that's going to come back to me actually vanished um, quite quickly into my, my early 20s when I realized how much, how rewarding it actually is. And that was what I was getting back from it. Um, and I think that's why I've stuck with healthcare for as long as I have and have done multiple different things within the health system. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And then and then nearly 10 years ago, you you made another shift um, more into um we call like health ethics or, or mm -hmm. medical ethics, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you say a little bit yeah. about what, what, um, uh, what prompted the, the move into that area of healthcare? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, my, my, uh, my role, um, in the neonatal unit, um, I was a nurse practitioner and mm -hmm. in, in that role, all of us sort of specialized in something. And, and I was really drawn to the challenges and the dilemmas that people were facing when it came to, 
um, uh, this idea of um, salvaging newborns who are at the at the cusp of viability. And there was a lot of moral distress that was happening and, and it wasn't talked about and people didn't have a space to go to, to um, understand how they were feeling and, and sort of debate the issue of, you know, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. And so I was really drawn to, to that and, and this, and the suffering that went along with it from all sides, from the parental side, from the infant side, from the health professional side. And so, you know, in, in ethics, you can't just take a course and say, hey, I can support you now because I've taken a course in ethics. Yeah. So I went back and I did my master's of bioethics at University of Toronto. Um, and from there, I then had great opportunity um, at uh, Hamilton Health Sciences to expand that role into a con consultation role and then to into the um, clinical and organizational ethicist at HHS. Yeah. So it really opened up a lot of doors for me. And and hence, I ended up leaving neonatal and, and going full time into the bioethics world and into that role as a bioethicist. And that's where I sort of began to do this full cycle of the, the life cycle, this full picture, right? So going from newborns to as an ethicist being involved in many, many um, cases in which there were um, real dilemmas around end of life care. And so yeah. that's sort of how that landed. Yeah, so maybe we could just explore that a little bit further because to the layperson, um, many people will will understand uh, what the word ethics means. It obviously has to do with with choice. When, um, well, for lack of better phrases like right or wrong, or people mm -hmm. often think of ethics and and morality and that kind of thing. Yeah. What yeah. What are some of the the challenges then that that an, an ethicist like yourself would have to face? Yeah, so. Um, the first challenge is to understand um, the difference between ethics and values and morals. And so this is something that I would often try and explain to people that, um, you know, the idea of what I bring to the table is my morals and values and how I sort through that is by using an ethics framework so that there is no right or wrong answer, right? There's no yes or no, black or white, right or wrong, because you using the lens of ethics means that we accept the other person's opinion and we come to some understanding, mutual understanding of um, how to move forward in a difficult, challenging situation that will serve the best for everyone in most mm. situations. Sometimes that service is just for the individual, um, but other times it's for um, the best interest of everyone involved. When we talk about medical ethics, it often is about the focus of the patient um, and how we can help support what would be the best um, decision for that person. Um, and so the idea of what challenges came up as, you know, in when we think about medical ethics, um, a lot of challenges come up around this idea of continuing on with care or withdrawing care and stopping mm -hmm. treatment. Um, and this idea of, you know, how much is somebody willing to go through for more time? And that looks different for everyone, you know, so for somebody who's at the cusp of their life, mm. um, they may go through a lot of different um, treatments and, and suffering for themselves, for their family, so that they can continue to live. Whereas somebody who might be at the latter part of their life may say, you know what, I've done enough. And, um, 
I'm okay. I've accomplished a lot in my life and I'm okay just to allow nature to take its course. And so you can see they could be in the exact same situation, but have a different perspective and a different um, application of that, of those options to their own lives. And so there isn't a right or wrong answer there. It's what's right, right for that person is the right answer. Yeah. So you're not a person who, who makes decisions for, for people. Um, but you're presenting them with with the information and asking them to look on both sides, uh, yeah. all sides yeah. of the of the of the situation. Um, does does your role as an ethicist? I mean, does that uh, often or ever put you in in sort of confrontation with with the on the medical side with doctors and consultants mm -hmm. yeah. um, who who might disagree with with your your approach? Yeah, sure, all the time. Yeah? Oh, right. <laughs> you know, because. Um, Sometimes when we're experts at something, we, we um, sometimes will assume that we have all the right answers. Mm. Um, but what I've come to learn is that um, health professionals um, often, if presented in such a way that you're respectful to their, um, their profession and to their opinion, um, they, they are very willing to see the other side of the story. And mm -hmm. I, I think it does take somebody who's skilled in communication, who is, um, has a demeanor that is um, uh, in some ways gentle to the situation mm. and not forceful and abrasive, but, you know, to be able to say, let me hear your side of the story. Where are your struggles? Because the reality is health professionals struggle day in and day out. Some of these decisions create great moral distress for them. And sometimes they do things that actually go against what they believe in and what they value for the sake of upholding a person's autonomy. Yeah. And so we, we, we can't ignore the fact that, that health professionals are human beings too. Um, but yeah. definitely there's been, there's been many times when, um, you know, I've had to, um, you know, call the, call out the elephant in the room or call yeah. a spade a spade, as I like to say. And sometimes yeah. the truth is, you know, hard to swallow, but um, I find it from both ends too, right? So even from um, people who are making decisions on behalf of their loved ones and, yeah. you know, they may not have the right answers and have to be open to listening to what others um, might have an opinion about. It must be, uh, it must, I mean, it's obviously it's challenging, but it must be difficult. And there must be times when you've gone home at night and wondered, you know, did I did I do the right thing? Did I make the right decision? I mean, this it sounds like a role with a lot of responsibility and accountability yeah. to it. Yeah, um, I can tell you that there have been many times that I've cried at night, um, sure. which I don't think is a bad thing. I think we need to express our emotion and and not have it um, internalized. There's been times when I've cried with my my clients and my patients, mm -hmm. and and um, and I've never had a patient say to me, "Why are you crying?" most times what I hear is thank you for understanding um, or I appreciate how much you care about my loved one and I can see that in your emotion and and I find that that actually in some ways builds a nice rapport um, and it 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 um, it humanizes the situation um, and you know there are times when you know I I feel like we've lost sight of the patient. And I think that's what often has caused me the greatest suffering for in my own role in that everybody's scurrying around trying to get their own way and they forget that there's actually a human being in front of them that they're making a right. decision for. Right. And it becomes this tug of war and this idea of, you know, um, give and take. And 
And then there's this lost person who can't be at the table because they're not capable of making decisions for themselves. And we've asked somebody else to come in and make a decision for them. And so I think that's that often will cause me a great deal of distress. And I would always start a meeting by um, bringing that person into the room, not physically, but by in spirit, by saying, I want everyone to remember that we're here because of this person and we don't want to lose sight that they're they are the most important person in the room even though they can't physically be here with us yeah. um let's move on i want to talk about advanced care planning because that's mm-hmm. an, another area that, that i know you have great interest in i read a statistic recently that cited um something like 93 percent of canadians um agreed that you know talking about your end of life wishes plans and so on was a very important thing but only about 17% of uh, people actually get around to, you know, making a plan. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Why is it? Yeah. Why? Do, why do the majority of people think it's a great idea, but so few actually yeah. get down to doing yeah. anything about it? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder um, whether or not people think if they put something on paper, it's binding. Uh, and right. they're not sur- sure of what the future is going to hold, so they'd rather just kind of put it off. Mm. Um, until it's absolutely necessary. I think another reason is that people feel things will just work out and that their family will know what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, this is probably true. But when tough decisions need to be made and somebody doesn't have an understanding of that person's wishes, the default is to say, just do everything. And so we are risking this idea of burden of treatment or burden of care because or over-treatment um, or unwanted treatment. There's so many different terms I can use, but this idea of a loved one just can't say no to treatment. And so even, even if the person has said, like, I don't want to go through suffering, because it's a, it's a huge responsibility on, put on somebody's shoulders. And mm-hmm. the best thing that we can do for our loved ones is to have something at least that they can go on, even if it's just conversation to say, hey, if I'm ever in this situation, it's okay to say no more. Um, and without that, that person is left feeling very responsible because mm-hmm. sometimes these decisions actually result in the end of a person's life. They're not the cause of a person's life because no. the underlying disorder and diseases, yeah. but they feel that they are the moral agent to that yeah. decision and that death. And that is a huge thing to live with for the rest of your life. Yes, yes. So let's, you know, for anybody thinking about advanced care plan, now they're thinking, <clears throat> maybe I better do this. But but why? Why is an advanced care plan, um, uh, nece- you know, necessary uh, and part yeah. of living well? Mm-hmm. So... I think the advanced care plan um, or like writing it down onto a, what we, what I would call an advanced healthcare directive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the actual process of getting there that is the most valuable. And so it's the discussions, it's learning about different options that we might have as time progresses. Um, it's, it's about identifying who's the right person to make a decision on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about trying to figure out how am I going to share this with others so that you know, if some big decisions need to be made, they've got some really good direction from me with giving them a little bit of wiggle room, right? Like we don't mm-hmm. want to bind anyone to you must do, even if this is like not, if you, even if it's not possible, I want this to happen, right? Like that's just tying people's hands behind their back. 
But so, so it's really about the process. And the reason that we should be doing this is because we know that almost 80% of us will be incapable of making decisions on our own behalf as we near towards the end of our lives, whether we suffer with an acute event like a motor vehicle accident or, um, you know, something less acute like a cancer or a heart attack or a stroke or just simply frailty, just the progression of aging. And as we yeah. age, we begin, begin to do less and less for ourselves or able to do less and less. And our brain isn't functioning as, as great as it was when we were in our prime. And so we, we need support in making these decisions. And so we know that the majority of us will need somebody at some point in our lives to make a decision on our behalf that's medical, shelter, or for personal health needs. And so it's best that we sort of explain to that, that person what our person who we're going to be choosing um, what what we want for ourselves, yeah. it, even, whether it be in general terms or very specific, um, just to be opening up that conversation. So you would say that the, 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 I guess the first step is to really sit down and think about, you know, what what you would like, what what are your values around it? What's important mm -hmm. to you? And mm -hmm. to talk to your loved ones yeah. and have that conversation. Yeah. 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 And are like, there, I mean, the first, there, yeah. Like the first thing you can think about is what matters to me, quality or quantity of yeah. life. You know, that's a simple thing to be debating in your mind, right? Like, and what does quality of living look like? What would it mean to be, um, need to have reliance on others for, for my, my feeding, my personal care needs? Um, you know, even, um, to the point of, um, you know, what, what would, uh, living somewhere else look like for me if I couldn't live in my home? You know, um, so even that simple first step of of when people think of what do I what do you mean by value that that's one of the first things that you can do is yeah. think about quality versus quantity of living. Are there good conversation starters? Any yeah. tips you can give to yeah. people? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there there's the idea of um, you know I just came back from my doctor's and we started talking about this idea of of care planning. I hadn't even heard of it before, but it really made me start thinking about what I, what I want for myself. And you guys are going to be in a position of having to make that decision. And so I want to share that with you. So that's the first yeah, thing you can yeah. kind of rely on a, a, a recent visit to a specialist or to a doctor. You can also, you know, um, refer back to maybe somebody, uh, something you've read in the paper or uh, somebody who has recently died and said, geez, yes. I wonder if they were, you know, how that went for them. You know, I want to make sure it's planned out well. Yeah. Um, the other yeah. thing is just to be simply blunt about it and say, listen, like this is important to me and I'm, a, I'm going to put you in a position of having to make decisions for me. So yeah. I want to make sure that you're well prepared for that because I want to make sure you understand what I, what I I'm thinking right now. Um, so that's, that's the other way. And then the other thing is to be honest about it and say, you know, I'm nervous about talking with you about this. And so I'm hoping that somehow we can find some comfort in knowing yeah. that we're having this conversation because I don't like talking about death. I know you don't like talking about death, but I know it's a hundred percent certain that both of us are going to die. And yeah. so I, I would rather be prepared than not. Central to an advanced care plan, you've mentioned this a number of times, is your substitute decision maker, the mm -hmm. person who who can speak for you um, when you're unable to and, and can make decisions according to your wishes. How how should someone go about choosing? What are the qualities that you look for? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the first thing is somebody who's going to be available, right? So you don't want to pick somebody who might be overseas that, you know, their time difference is completely opposite to ours. 
because when somebody's making a decision for you, they have to go through a process that we would call informed consent. So, mm-hmm. and that means understanding all the options, um, the alternatives, the harms, the benefits. And so they have to engage in discussion with people that are proposing different treatment options, like your health professionals. It might also be um, your com- community home service that mm-hmm. uh, might decide that you're no longer able to live in your own home um, and want support in making some decisions about that. So you want that person available. Um, You also want to know that that person is going to be able to follow your wishes. And so that's why it's important once you start talking about them, um, you know, that you, you ask that person, would, do you think you'd be able to fulfill these wishes that I have? Would you be able to say, okay, let's stop treatment? Because there are people that will say, I would never be able to do that. It might even be about against their own belief system Mm -hmm. to agree to stopping any form of life-sustaining treatment in the event that that's the decision that needs to be made. And so you don't want to put somebody in a position that you've given them direction that actually go against their values. And so that's another, you know, question. Um, You also want somebody who feels comfortable in having conversations with health professionals in hearing what you want for yourself. And so you know that the default is often, I'll just get my closest living relative to be the person because they know me best. And that might be true that they know you best and they're the most intimate person in your life. Um, But they also may not be the best person to make decisions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wouldn't just rely on the fact that the person's the closest living relative to you or your your spouse or partner. Um, I would really give it some thought about who's going to be the best person to make this decision and are they willing to do this for me? Right. And and if someone doesn't have uh, a substitute decision maker, mm-hmm. what would happen uh, as far as um, health decisions go if you mm-hmm. weren't able to mm-hmm. make them for yourself? Yeah. So a lot of people think that it's the health team that will eventually make a decision. But the reality is it's the public guardian and trustee. So every community has access to the public guardian and trustee office. And they would then contact and the, and the, the what I term PGT. Um, would come in and they would talk to the health professionals. They would try and seek out any living relative um, if the health team hasn't already done so. Um, and uh, failing that they find anyone, they would then make a decision. Um, and so that's, it, it's not ideal because it's not somebody who knows you at all. And mm-hmm. so you'd be better off appointing a friend, um, somebody who's a friend that would be willing to do that. Some people will even um, uh, appoint an executor um, to do that. There, there are services within our community um, that people will offer to be power of attorney for personal care or for property or executors so that you don't have to rely on the public guardian and trustee to manage your well-being. Right. So so if someone thought that their spouse, for example, would be the person that the, that the doctors would come to, is that is that true or, or not necessarily true? Yep, that would be true, um, because the spouse, if you have not appointed somebody, so the highest ranking person is somebody you've actually said, hey, I want you to be my power of attorney, and you've signed legal documents. So they rank above everybody. But failing that, in Ontario, we have a ranking order. And so top of the order is your spouse or partner, and that's defined as anyone that you're living in an intimate relationship with for over a year. Um, And so anyone in that situation would then be considered your spouse. And so people, a word of caution, if you're living with somebody and you, let's say your boyfriend and girlfriend, Mm 
um, uh, and you're, you know, you, you're really having a fun time together, but man, oh man, that's not the person you want making decisions. By legal rights, that will be the person that makes decisions on your behalf. So that's the first sort of um, person. The next in line is any children or parents, and they equal they rank equally. So if you have two capable parents and two children that are capable of and of the age over 18 to be a substitute decision maker, all four of them will equal, will rank equally. And all four of them will be entitled to make decisions on your behalf. So that's something that a lot of people don't know. They think one person will be picked out of that line of four. But in fact, if they all fall on that line, they all are entitled to. So um, that's the next in line. Then um, after that would be any um, siblings. So any sibling that you have, your sibling would, would be um, somebody that they would turn to if you don't have a spouse, parent, child. Um, and then under that would be any other living relative. Right. And then be, um, beyond that is the public guardian and trustee. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And mm -hmm. when we talk about a substitute uh, decision maker or SDM, um, it's one thing to, to choose that person, but when, once you've chosen that person, it needs to be recorded in your power of attorney for health care. That's a legal document. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. that's another, another important thing. And definitely have a conversation with that person, because yeah. I have heard at least of one case where somebody discovered that they were the substitute decision maker, uh, but they only found out quite late on. Uh, they hadn't yeah. had the conversation with the person. Yeah. Yeah. So they were yeah. honored to be chosen, but not quite sure. They were surprised yeah. by the choice. Yeah. 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 So that does happen too. Um, we're going to just, I just want to wind up, but Sandra, what, uh, what in your mind is a good death? If we, we mm -hmm. talk about having a good mm -hmm. death, what would that look like? Yeah. That's a great question. And, you know, I've given this a lot of thought because as you know, uh, one of my roles, I'm a hospice nurse. And so I've seen good deaths and I've seen um, not so good deaths. Um, I think a good death is when you, um, you feel a sense of control um, until the end. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are conscious, but you are, you're, you're, mind and your soul and your heart is put at ease knowing that the people around you know what's important to you mm. um, and i'll give you an example of this so many people will say they don't want to be in pain or they don't want to struggle to breathe as we near the end of our lives it would be very difficult to articulate that in my experience with death and dying um, when you have skilled professionals they'll be able to notice that but also if you have somebody who is near you at the end of life and knows that those are the things that you're most fearful of, they can speak on your behalf and they can say, just to remind you, they really, their biggest fear was pain, or just to remind you, their biggest fear was to struggle with oxygen, or they really wanted their pets with them when they were in their last days to hours, or they really wanted their family member around, or this was the location, this is what they described as their ideal death even to the point of here's the music that they wanted mm. that we talked about. Mm. Those are the things that are going to give you peace of mind and, and, and help ensure that you have a good death. And so that's, that's what I hope for people um, when we work through this process and when they describe what their wishes are and, and this idea of, you know, documenting some of these things so that you, you so that when, when you're understood, you actually have a greater chance of having the death and and that final chapter in your life that you're hoping for. Yeah, 
it's all about empowering, as you say, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's what advanced care uh, planning is is about: is providing you with the knowledge and and uh, your mm-hmm. loved ones and and building mm-hmm. that support network ahead of time, yeah. so that you are less yeah. anxious. And yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Can I just ahead. add one thing? Because I heard yeah. recently, and and I was on a um, I was on a, a webinar with um, a, a bunch of physicians and a bunch of people from the community and. And one of the things that was said was that the advanced directive, the living will is useless. And um, and this came from a health professional. And I know what they're saying because sometimes it's very vague. And what people will say, and this is often the default when somebody says, oh, I've done my advanced directive. I've said I don't want any heroics. That actually creates further complication because people are then going, what do they mean by heroics? And so... This idea, like if you just went and did your advanced directive within, within your lawyer's office, it's not helpful unless you actually have a very fulsome discussion and an understanding and you articulate that on paper or verbally to say what you want. So it's not just a matter of saying, I don't want heroics. I don't want CPR. And that's what I have in my experience as an ethicist. When I was reading the advanced directives, that's what some of the things I was seeing and, you know, you know, a lot of the work that I do evolves around this idea of creating some type of communication strategy so that you can have good um, understanding of a person's wishes. And the reason I do that is because I've seen so many bad ones and mm-hmm. I, I want to help people do really good ones so that that idea that I just described about a good death would go yes. into your advanced directive. So you can see it's it's not like it's not hard. It's not specific and, and pigeonholing somebody into it a decision A or B, it's about really giving a fulsome picture of what's important um, for you. So an advanced care uh, directive, it's not a legal document, um, but the, but the power of attorney for um, your healthcare, I mean, that is a legal document. Yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah, So the advanced directive Mm -hmm. itself, um, how formal is it? I mean, can, Mm -hmm. uh, do people have to fill out a specific form, a template, Mm -hmm. or can they Mm -hmm. just write something up on a piece of paper or uh, on their computer yeah, it can be. So the way in which our our, um, uh, can, our healthcare consent act is written is that um, in making decisions for an incapable person, it is based on the last expressed wish, whether it be verbal or written, that is applicable to the situation. And so that's that's how it's written in the in the in the um, act that we follow as health professionals and as powers of attorney for personal care. And so it really is opening up to any option that you want. Some people can't afford to go and have an advanced directive formally drawn up in a legal office. Um, And so it doesn't mean that you have to, but what what you don't wanna do is not say anything, not do anything. So it could be, It can be in a a memoir, it can be um, in in conversation, serious carved out conversation about what your wishes are. It can be in an advanced directive that is fulsome and and helps articulate how you define quality of living, death and dying. Um, It it can be um, a video that you take um, Mm -hmm. of yourself and and, just sharing with others. Um, And the, the important thing about these decisions and how we solidify them is that we need to allow for room for changing over time. So yes. not that it's carved in stone, right. um, but that it is something as a platform to, to jump off from um, when making good decisions. 
And in the Substitute Decisions Act, it's actually the responsibility of your power of attorney or your substitute decision maker to interpret what your wishes are, whether it be written or verbally. And so when somebody needs to interpret something, it's often better if they have writing in front of them to interpret versus recall from a conversation. So I don't recommend just having conversation. I do recommend documentation. Um, And even in, in a workbook form, you know, there's advanced care planning workbooks that you can, you can use. Um, So lots of different tools that are out there to help support the documentation, um, you know, and how to get that down on paper um, in such a way that your decision maker can look at it, interpret it, and then see if it applies. And also be able to give it to the health professional who can look at it and say, hey, I see what your loved one has written down. This is all great information. Given what they've written, here's what I would recommend, which in some ways saves the person from making a hard, hard decision because um, it, it, it supports the health professionals in, in offering treatment that they see would align with what the person wants. It gives them a good idea of who that person is um, instead of guessing um, yeah. who that person is in front of them. And, and can you, um, I'm thinking of the actual, you know, the document, if you do write it up or even if you make an audio or video recording, do you, um, do you give a copy of this to your family doctor? Is, mm-hmm. is that what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I've had a couple family doctors who have reached out to me um, when their clients have come with their advanced directive and said, wow, that's awesome. Like now I really have a great understanding. And so the family docs actually really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And I've had family docs say to me, um, you've saved me a lot of work because the stuff right. that's in here either helped me have conversation or it was something we were going to talk about and now I can read about it and then take it from there. And so, um, yeah, the family docs really do like to have this information, um, so that they, they can make sure that they're advocating for their patient as well. Yeah. And I've heard some people say, um, uh, you know, I remember an an older woman said, Oh, I, I have a copy of my advanced directive and I keep it um, on the fridge with a little magnet, you know, and she Mm -hmm. was worried if she collapsed at home and the paramedics came, she wanted to make sure that, that they, they got it, that, um, that they kind of followed her, her wishes is, is that, that would be something you'd recommend as well. You could. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like people do need to have this accessible. It's one thing to do it. And if you bury it and nobody can find it, same with on the, on your um, laptop, right? If you have it on your laptop and people don't know the passcode to your laptop, then it's useless. It's, it's all that work for nothing. So we do uh, recommend that it be accessible. Um, What your um, uh, um, friend was probably talking about, or could have been talking about would be the idea of having the do not resuscitate forms, yes, yes. Um, which is a community form that is from the, um, the ministry of um, uh, emergency services. So the, the fire, the firefighters and the paramedics, yeah. it gives them direction that if they walk into your house and you have already um, discussed with your physician about a do not resuscitate, that they will um, they will honor that. Without that piece of paper, by law, they have to start resuscitation until they get um, uh, permission from a doctor to stop. And so there have been many, many sad stories where people were palliative at home, receiving palliative care, knowing that they were going to die and wanting to die a natural death. 
and then they're, they're either their loved ones panicked or emergency services were called and, you know, and maybe their loved ones panicked just because they need support, not because they want resuscitation, but yeah. the person is in the process of dying. There's no documentation. And now the paramedics and firefighters are obliged to begin uh, resuscitation, which can be a really horrific um, experience for the family and for the person. So, you know, an important point that your your friend had made about wanting to keep it so that people knew where where it was and that it was a common spot that people would look look for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. Sandra, I really want to thank you. Um, you know, just let people know we've been talking to Sandra Andrzejczyk. Uh, she's a registered nurse. She works in palliative care. She's a health ethicist and, um, and an advanced care planning consultant uh, as well. Sandra, if people wanted to find out more about you or get in touch with you, how might they do that? Um, so a couple ways. I have a website. So it's qualitylifeplanning.com. Um, and, and then also, um, I, in, in that, um, website is my contact phone number. So people can text or email me as well. I'm quite accessible because I do want, um, people to seek out the resources that, that can help support them in, in making some really great plans for their future health. Oh, that's great. So Mm qualitylifeplanning.com is Sandra's website and you'll find her, all the contact details there and lots of information. Um, Sandra, I just want to thank you very much. I should also say, of course, Sandra's based in Hamilton, but I'm sure she would be happy to hear from uh, anybody anywhere. Um, yeah, absolutely. Who's, yeah, who's interested. Uh, Sandra, I, I'd love to have you back again. There are so many um, you know, topics that kind of spin off from advanced care planning. Yeah. We, you talked about the DNR, the do not resuscitate, um, and we could talk about the implications of that and, and you know, some of the things that people should be thinking about when they're considering that, organ donation. Yeah palliative care and maybe um, that's another topic that um, we'll come back to in the future is is hospice care palliative care in in hospice um, which a lot of people do ask about so let's save that for another conversation absolutely i'd love to yeah thanks so much uh, for for being here today though really appreciate it you're welcome michael thanks for having me and my guest this week was the nurse practitioner, um, healthcare consultant, advanced care planning consultant, Sandra Andrzejczyk. Her website again, qualitylifeplanning.com. Death Defying Discussions uh, is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time, this is Michael Williams saying goodbye for now.